gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 16. We are reading verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, we confess that we are poor and needy. We have nothing to offer to you. We have nothing to commend ourselves. But we have this good news, the news of Jesus' resurrection, the news of resurrection that changes everything for us. And so we come this morning, God, and we ask that you help us, that you grant us insight and understanding, that you illumine our minds, and that in all of our darkness that we see light because we know Jesus triumphant, resurrected from the dead. And so we ask this morning that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In his haunting novella, The Death of Even. Ilev Ichevich, never say it right, Ilevich, <laughs> Leo Tolstoy tells the story of a man confronted by, but yet who refuses to deal with his mortality. Ivan is a judge in the high court of Russia, and he gave no thought to the subject of death. He simply ignored it. He considered himself above it. But then he was diagnosed with an incurable disease, something wrong in his gut that was laying waste to his life. He was dying while everyone else around him was thriving. He was confronted by death itself. And Tolstoy writes this, in the depths of his soul, Ivan knew he was dying. But not only could he not get used to the idea, he didn't understand it, couldn't understand it at all. All his life he had heard the syllogism. Julius Caesar is a man, men are mortal, therefore Caesar is mortal. It had always seemed to him to be true only when it applied to Caesar, certainly not to himself. Yvonne then thinks to himself, yes, Caesar is mortal and it's all right for him to die, but not me. You see, he was stuck in denial. And then he explains further, it surely wasn't possible that everybody everywhere should be condemned to this awful horror. But this horror, this death, 
that he describes. This is the universal human experience. Everyone is subjected to it. And Yvonne was not alone in denying the reality. The reality often is too much and too severe for people simply to face. And it is this inconvenient truth, this news of our mortality that strikes us at 100% that casts a shadow over our lives. It often dictates and controls life, even without us being conscious of it, that death looms, that it is the reality, the sad reality of our world. But it is this morning in hearing the news, the glad news of Jesus' resurrection, that something confronts death itself, that something confronts the shadow that hangs over all of human life. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus, it's not a sentimental message which promises a nice ending to every bad beginning. That's not what the resurrection is about. It's not an event that teaches us to look for the silver lining in the cloud. That's not what it's about. No, the death and resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus rises up from the dead, it is the announcement that the darkness that looms over all humanity, that has fallen on us due to our turn against God and our sinful rebellion against him, that sin and its wages, death itself, has been defeated. That's the news of the resurrection, that this dread that hangs over us all has been destroyed. And so this morning, we come once again, and we come with Mary Magdalene, we come with Mary, the mother of James, we come with Salome, we come with Peter, and we come with all the disciples, and we come to hear the startling news, startling news that can strike fear in the heart and wonder and amazement simultaneously that Jesus Christ has come out the other side of death. And Psalm 118, a long and beautiful psalm, has often in the history of the church been associated with Jesus. The New Testament itself associates it with Jesus' resurrection. And the psalm you may have noticed is focused on a single worshiper who has survived a dangerous crisis. That crisis is recorded for us, but he's been delivered from it. And then he processes to the temple. And it's there in the temple that he proclaims his deliverance to the community. And it's there that the community surrounds him and celebrates his deliverance. And so this psalm is appropriately the psalm of the risen Jesus. Because it is the story of deliverance from death. And then the community surrounding him in praise as they experience his deliverance inside of themselves as they look to him in faith. And so in the psalm, who we hear, the proclamation we hear, is none other than the living Jesus, ascended and victorious. And as he proclaims himself to us today, he directs us in two ways. He's going to direct us to the source of our salvation that belongs to us in him, and he's going to direct us into the shape of that salvation and what life looks like that flows from him. And so let's look at each of these this morning ahead of our celebration at the Lord's table. First, our Lord Jesus directs us to the source of our salvation. If you follow along in verses 5 through 18 of the psalm, you'll see that this is the first of two main sections. 
And in this first section, Jesus is testifying to the community about his deliverance from death. Verses 5 through 7, out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. He goes on to speak of his trust in God and the danger that surrounded him in verses 8 through 16. And then once again in verses 17 and 18, he returns to his deliverance. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined or chastised me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And so the psalm is centered on rehearsing and retelling the good news. And that good news is the deliverance of Jesus from the clutches of death. But what's critical for us here is that we don't simply have a history lesson. That is the recording of events then and there that can feel remote and disassociated from us. But it's critical to note that this deliverance was not just a private event with personal implications for Jesus. No, as you follow the psalm into the second main section, verses 19 through 28, in this section of the psalm, we hear that there's now a community with this risen Jesus. And if you look in verse 25, they actually pray. They say, save us, O Lord. That yes, the risen Jesus, that he goes to the gates of the temple. If you look in verse 19, you see the demand, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And friends, this is where the psalm begins to make sense of our own experience, that the risen Jesus, he enters into the gates of righteousness, and he demands that they be opened because he alone is the one who is able to enter. He alone is the righteous one. He alone is the one without sin, that he can go to the heavenly temple and he can demand entrance because he alone can go across that threshold. He alone can enter there because he has lived the perfect life. He has lived the life free from sin. He has lived the life of perfect love. But this risen Jesus, as he enters into the temple, the good news for you and I is that he brings us with him. That only the righteous can cross the threshold. But that community who cries out, save us, Lord, and looks to this deliverance that has been accomplished for Jesus. We now share in his righteousness. We share in his righteous record that God doesn't count us as we are, that is in our sins, but our sins are forgiven and we're given this new status and this new decree and label has been placed over our lives. And that yes, the righteous shall enter in, but it's not a righteousness that you have created. It's not a righteousness that you have conjured up it's not a righteousness that you have participated in by your good deeds. It's a righteousness given to you as a gift. It's the righteousness of this royal son, Jesus, accomplished for you. And so we enter in with him. He brings us with us. And friends, this is the source of salvation. And this is what we mean that salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. 
Because you see, Jesus didn't come to give us some tips and techniques about how to be mindful and true to ourselves, to get in touch with ourselves. No, Jesus didn't come to teach us about setting up a political utopia in which we respect one another and make the world right. And he didn't come to give us instructions about how to improve ourselves morally so that we can put a claim on God and demand that he approve of us. This is not salvation by grace. Salvation by grace is that a gift has been given, that something has been accomplished and effected for you, that you were inept and incapable, that I was a failure, that I was condemned and under God's judgment, and yet Jesus entered into that judgment and received that condemnation into himself. And then because he is the one righteous one, because he was pure and undefiled, he can demand to be enter into the gates of righteousness. And by faith, we share in that righteousness as a gift. And that's the source of salvation. This is what Jesus proclaims to us today, that our victory is derived from his victory, that it is derivative, that it is dependent. And his victory now belongs to us when we look to him in faith. And so look to him this Easter Sunday. But secondly, we also hear the risen Jesus direct us about the shape of this salvation. That once we have tapped into the source and we understand that salvation is a gift, that it's purely of the grace of God, that it has nothing to do with us but, sure, but only what has been accomplished in Jesus, there's a certain shape that that life then takes. If you look carefully at Psalm 118, you would see that the first four verses and then the final verse in verse 29 repeat one another somewhat. It begins with a thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. And then in verse 29, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And whenever we find this feature in the psalm at the beginning and end, it means that everything in between is conditioned by it. That the deliverance of the Messiah, the deliverance of Jesus out of death on our behalf, that we can share in that deliverance, that we can be called righteous, that that deliverance, the shape that it brings into our life is one of thanksgiving. That this is the only offering that exists for you and for me to bring. It's the offering and the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise for a gift that we haven't deserved. And this is what Psalm 118 also summons us to. You see the community in verses 23 and 24 respond to the proclamation and the declaration of Jesus. And they say, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And friends, when we recognize that salvation is God's doing, that salvation is God's working, this is what happens. We rejoice and we announce that it is marvelous in our eyes that God alone has worked this. And we gather on that day, the Lord's day, the day of God's own making when he took his son out of death and raised him and brought him to life and trampled down sin and death and evil 
and declares that it's dead and puts it in the grave. It's that day that we gather and we do so Lord's Day by Lord's Day. In verse 26, you see that we bless him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And in verse 28, we confess and profess, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. And the great congregation who's been delivered, we renew that confession of faith on that great day of God's making, Sunday, the day of the Lord. And it's this dynamic of thanksgiving that pervades all that we are and all that we do. This is the shape of the life that has been saved and delivered. And so this morning, the reality of death, it hangs over the human race. It looms over your life and it looms over mine. It is a universal occurrence and it can drive us to despair and to denial. It confronts us all. But at the empty tomb of Jesus, there's a deeper confrontation that takes place. That when Jesus emerges from death, he is the pioneer, the firstborn out of death, and he confronts death itself. And he destroys it from within by going underneath its curse, but then being the righteous one, death could not hold him. And so he defeats death. And he invites you this morning to share in that great victory. To know that death, though a reality, is not the last word. That there's a new and better word that will be spoken on the final great day of the Lord. That all who have looked to Jesus in faith, all who have shared in his righteousness, the gift that he freely gives, all who have entered in with him and offered thanksgiving and praise and not attempted to put a claim on God themselves, all who have rejoiced in this gift, that we too will hear that new and better word, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will share in Jesus' resurrection. Friends, this is the gift of Easter. It conquers sin and death. It conquers all the wages of death. And so our only response is to rejoice and to give thanks. Let's ask for God's help to do so. Father, we do rejoice. And we celebrate this morning in the deliverance of Jesus from the great trial that he undertook in going to the cross. And he gave himself there for us, and he gave himself into the clutches of death, and yet you freed him because he is the righteous one. And in him we share in that righteousness, and we are delivered and free, and it's only by grace and grace alone. Set us free. Set us free from ourselves. Set us free from the love of lesser things. And set us free to offer our thanks to you today. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.